America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A day before maybe our greatest day of the year, our greatest national holiday, certainly along with Independence Day. We have a, a day of Thanksgiving, or should it be renamed Thanks-taking. Uh, there's an unbelievable volume of extreme nastiness regarding the Thanksgiving holiday. We're going to try to rebut that, and partially by laughing at it, because it is so peculiar and strange and totally groundless. Uh, we will be getting to a relationship between Thanksgiving and the fight against sports teams using Indian mascots. Yeah, no more Cleveland Indians. It's now the Cleveland Guardians and no more Washington, dare I say it, Redskins. We have the Washington Commanders. Okay, what does that have to do with Thanksgiving? We There's a very controversial piece in the Washington Post that we will get to regarding that. Uh, there's also the latest... Uh, workplace shooting, the latest mass shooting in America. We've had over 600 of these. Over 600 this year so far, and the year is not over. And uh, this one at a Walmart involving an employee. We will talk about that and some of the more startling news concerning that horrible shooting at the gay nightclub, the Q Club in uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. But t today, this morning, there were two bombs that were set off in Jerusalem. There were 70 bombs, by the way, that rained down on Ukraine, including one that killed, it's, it's almost unspeakable, one of their bombs killed a newborn infant in a maternity ward. And I believe, according to most reports, the mother as well. Uh, what about support for Ukraine? We will get to that as well. But first, uh, let me speak to my brother, John, and my brother, Jonathan Medved, is a, a leading businessman in Israel and has been m making a wonderful life for himself and his children and grandchildren in Israel for 35 years. And uh, he woke up with this news. It was a seven in the morning, your time, right, John, that the first bomb went off? That's correct. And uh, one young Canadian, 15 years old, a yeshiva student, a student at, uh, at seminary at a religious academy, was killed at a bus stop. Uh, and uh, then how many people injured at the, uh, uh, the, the first bomb and then the second bomb that went off? Look, these, these were uh, a, a sort of a little bit of a turning point in the recent state of violence which we've been experiencing here um, until now it's been primarily lone wolf attacks people who take a knife or a gun uh, or a car and try to kill jews but they haven't been particularly organized and they haven't had the marks of real professional terrorists this one was this was planned there were two bombs clearly from the same group that went off a half an hour away from each other here in Jerusalem, they were bombs that were filled with nails in order to kill and maim as many people as possible. And they were directed at children, which, of course, is the terrorist's favorite target. At 7 and 7.30 in the morning, 
that's when kids are uh, at bus stops getting ready to go to school, and they uh, hit kids. Uh, about nine of them are uh, currently in the hospital. One died, uh, R.A. Shupak, 15-year-old uh, uh, young man from uh, originally from Canada who's been living and studying here. And, you know, what's, what's clear is that the reason this is starting to happen now is because of the enormous progress that Israel has made in terms of reconciliation in the region together with people like the United Arab Emirates and the Saudis. And Israel is becoming accepted. Moreover, there were Arabs in the government just until recently, or still are as we have a transition government, and are occupying very, very high positions in Israeli uh, politics and the economy. The chairman of Bank Lumi, Israel's largest bank, the National Bank, is an Arab Israeli. And today, which was not covered as much, there was this absolutely horrific attack in the town of Janine where two Druze, uh, who, and Druze are an offshoot of Islam, two Druze teenagers, one seventeen and one eighteen, were in a car accident and were taken to the hospital, at which point a group of armed terrorists stormed the hospital, unhooked the 17-year-old from his life support, where he was, they were trying to save his life, and stole the body, claiming that he is a Zionist, because the Druze, by the way, serve in the Israeli army and are loyal citizens of the state. Well, they're generals and in the so, Israeli army, too, right? I mean, don't they, they do very well in the army? Yeah, services. I mean, they're, they're, they're completely integrated. And so this really tells the story, which is that this is not just a war against Jews. It's a war against the state of Israel for all that it represents, where it represents progress, represents innovation, it represents integration and freedom, allowing people of all faiths to practice their religion and to serve in the army and to serve in government. And so attacking Jewish kids and Arab kids on the same day in the most horrific way, this is the way of our enemies. And uh, they're going to be hunted down, and they're going to be either arrested or killed, and we hope soon. Well, the, the statement by the interim prime minister, who the outgoing prime minister, uh, uh, Yair Lapid, was brief and, and uh, excellent, it seemed to me. He says an extensive intelligence effort is now underway that will lead to find these heinous terrorists, those behind them and those who provided them with weapons. We will find them. They can run. They can hide. It won't help them. The security forces will reach them. If they resist, they will be eliminated. If not, we will punish them to the fullest extent of the law. Um, is, is there some change of policy that you think the new government that's coming in under the former prime minister, seems like forever prime minister, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, is there a change in policy that can reduce this upsurge that seems to be occurring of uh, uh, terrorist acts against the state of Israel? Look, I don't think there are any easy solutions, but I think that there are all kinds of uh, methods that may or may not help matters. One is to continue to work in cooperation with the Palestinian Authority to make sure that they're doing their part to uh, put a damper on this. The other is to, you know, really 
focus on the centers of terror, such as Janine, where that uh, poor uh, Druze kid was, was kidnapped, and the other would be Shem or Nablus. These and are and by the way, so just to make clear to people, Druze are Arabs, but they are not Muslims. They have a, a separate religion, they but they speak, are certainly they Arabs. They speak Arabic, and yeah, and, they, and look, it's just it's 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 really unbelievable. So I think it's, the focus has got to be on eliminating the leadership. Uh, our intelligence is very very good, and making sure that there's a price to pay. So, for example, one of the uh, methods we do is to destroy the home of a terrorist who is uh, involved in these attacks. It looks now like they're going to uh, essentially prevent the terrorist family from coming and working inside of Israel. So their permits will be revoked, not just for one or two, but for literally uh, dozens, and in one case, recently hundreds. Okay, Jonathan, we we need to, we're going to a break. If you can hold on for just a moment, we will be back with uh, Jonathan Medved. He is the CEO of Our Crowd, which we're very proud to talk about on this show. It is a means of um, crowdsourcing, uh, high-tech investments in Israel and the United States and around the world. Uh, Check it out. Go to our website. Look for the banner for Our Crowd. We will be right back with more from Jerusalem and my brother, Jonathan Medved. The Michael Medved Show. MichaelMedved.com Michael Medved show. Glad to be joined the day before Thanksgiving by my brother Jonathan Medved from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was rocked this morning by two terrorist bombs, and these were not amateur bombs, as John pointed out. They had ball bearings and nails in them uh, to be used as shrapnel, so that when the bomb explodes, more people are seriously wounded or killed. Thank God, uh, one victim so far has lost his life a 15 year old uh, religious student uh, who has been living in Israel for some years but he uh, is Canadian originally apparently two Americans the embassy has reported uh, are also injured in these bomb attacks and uh, John you also know that at the same time actually yesterday evening we had a Yet another mass shooting here in the United States. We've had 600 of them this year, which is just appalling. The the difference, it seems to me, and I'd be very interested to get your thoughts on this, is that the attacks in in Israel that have also gone up this year, which are far, far fewer, uh, those those attacks which have claimed 129 Israeli lives... Uh, no, 20, 20, 29, Michael. Is it is it 29? Okay. It's 29, correct. Good, good. Uh, so those attacks uh, are part of an organized effort uh, to kill people, to, to try to work against the reconciliation and the peace agreements and things like the Abraham Accords that have been so beneficial for Israel and for the whole region. Uh, the... 
in the United States, it, there's nothing organized about this violence. It's just uh, random and horrible, which makes it even more difficult to respond to. Have you, uh, what is your take on, on that idea? The fact that... Look, uh, I, I, go ahead. I, I, th I, th I think that people have to understand how safe Israel is and how, despite a hundred years of trying to wipe out the Jewish presence in our land of Israel, they have not only failed miserably, but Israel continues to grow, thrive, and prosper. We're seeing a complete rebound of tourism, like never before. It's very hard to get a hotel room. By the way, anyone who wants to come visit our crowd's global summit February 15th will be welcoming you. We've got a few rooms left. But literally, wait, wait. How many people field, do you have at, the, at that global summit? You have thousands, right? About seven, seven thousand show up in person, and then about thirty thousand register and watch online. It's it's quite amazing. It's a whole week of activities centered around the uh, summit day itself, which is February fifteenth, and there'll be hundreds of startups talking about every kind of new technology, whether it's quantum computing or space or water tech, or uh, cybersecurity, food security, uh, climate change mitigation, all kinds of really exciting things. But the country is, 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 is just literally growing so fast. So uh, every year our population grows by about 2, 2.2, 2.3%. That means today we're approaching 10 million people. When I got here, for the first time as a tourist in 73, there were less than 2 million. So I've seen the population go up by 500%. The economy is powering ahead. This year, despite everything in the world markets, Israel will grow by 5%. The shekel is the only currency traded against the dollar for the last 10 years, which is actually appreciated in value against the mighty U.S. dollar. And the inflation rate here, while still too high, in my opinion, is a pretty reasonable 5%, at least compared to many other countries around the world. And the reason is because we're so driven by this startup nation economy, by incredible innovation, $25 billion invested in Israeli startups last year. And Israel has emerged as the world's most uh, important area for innovation outside of Silicon Valley. And you saw it this last week's at COP27, the climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh nearby in Egypt, where Israel sent the best of its uh, uh, startups developing projects such as uh, clean, green hydrogen energy or next generation weather prediction or growing milk protein, or recycling everything. And uh, it's just, it's a pleasure to be here. And so, yes, there is, there are, is terror, but we know how to fight it. And fight it, we do, and fight it, we win. And what goes on is that life wins. Unfortunately, 29 people is 29 too many to have lost. But in a country which grows its population by 220,000 people. There's a phrase in Hebrew and in Arabic 
which says that the uh, dogs bark and the caravan moves on. And we're the caravan. I was just using that the other day on the air, brother. So uh, we've, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, the In terms of, I just want to go back for a moment to something that you let drop that is so remarkable. You're going to have 7,000 people coming uh, from all over the world to your summit uh, for Our Crowd. And uh, by the way, people can find out about this on our website. And we have a whole Our Crowd section that people can go to. But uh, how many different countries are represented in those 7,000 folks? And there are a bunch uh, of a Arab countries uh, that are included too, right? Yes. There will be a, about 150 countries represented, and we're expecting hundreds of uh, guests from the Gulf, including from countries like uh, the UAE, Bahrain, and I, I even think we'll have a number of uh, Saudis come. Well, after they won the, their big <laughs> uh, <laughs> World Cup game yesterday, right? They, they're feeling like they're yeah. on top of the world. Well, they, they sort of so, look... A lot of excitement's going there. I've been spending a lot of time in that part of the world recently. I got back just a couple of days ago from Abu Dhabi, where we have a whole office, and we announced a huge investment in building together with them a uh, artificial intelligence startup called uh, Integrated Data Intelligence, where we're going to be developing machine learning and very advanced technology, and we're attracting people from around the world who want to build this reconciliation. It's such an incredible change, historic change, where Israel and its Arab neighbors are now working together and are going to lead, not in strife and conflict, but in doing good things for the world. And building. Uh, my brother, Jonathan Medved, so proud of you. And uh, you should have, from a great distance, a great American Thanksgiving and a wonderful Shabbat coming up. We will be right back. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. It's an honor to talk to you because I think you got the best talk show in the, in the United States. Thank uh, you. I agree. This is The Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. the Michael Medved show it is a real pleasure to uh, welcome back to the show my friend David French who is one of the leading conservative uh, and and pro-religious liberty attorneys in the country has uh, a great record in uh, winning cases to d defend the First Amendment particularly the First Amendment guaranteeing our rights to free exercise of religion and he is uh, also a distinguished writer, uh, has written several best-selling books, writes frequently for Atlantic, and uh, he has a piece in the New York Times which is absolute must-reading, it seems to me. And it's about what has become of the pro-life movement and how, look, uh, there were all kinds of problems for Republicans and conservatives in the recent midterm elections, but those elections brought all kinds of disappointments for pro-lifers. 
uh, wherever abortion was on the ballot, it seemed that people voted in a pro-abortion rights, that's the way that they would describe it, direction. Uh, and uh, David, if if you were to explain the deeper context of what is going on here, why following this tremendous victory at the Supreme Court on the level of law and ideas, do we seem to be losing the fight for hearts and minds of people across the country when it comes to the issue of abortion? That is a really, really good and incredibly vital question because, as you said in the setup to this, the electoral news for the pro-life movement was really grim. Uh, not only did a bunch of pro-life candidates lose, not only did exit polls indicate that abortion was the second most important factor to voters, and 76% of those voters who said abortion was, was most important to them voted for pro-choice candidates. Um, but the ballot measures, these, these independent referendums that were on the ballot, every pro-choice ballot referendum won, every pro-life ballot measure lost, and sometimes the life issue underperformed Republican politicians. In other words, the life issue was less popular even than some of these Republican politicians. And so here, here is the challenge. Uh, we really face a situation where the greatest legal victory of the pro-life movement, and I celebrated Dobbs, it removed a grave injustice from American constitutional law, could be followed by an enduring political defeat. And, and I think part of the reason of that for that enduring political defeat is that the pro-life movement got very deep, has become very deeply tangled up in the Republican Party and specifically and importantly, very deeply tangled up in Trumpism. And it's got to pull itself away from that. It has to pull itself away from that or it's really not going to be able to thrive over the long term. And, and when you talk about that, you have a statistic in um in your piece, which I actually checked on because I, I couldn't believe it, is that for years and years and years, the rate of abortion in the United States has been going down. The great success of the pro-life yeah. movement has been basically reaching people. And uh, yeah. even where there aren't new restrictions on abortion by law, uh, there has been a declining rate of abortion and dramatically declining. And the only... Uh, period of time in which uh, abortion started to go up again, the rate of abortion has been over the last five years, and particularly during the Trump presidency. Why would that be? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and to put it in perspective, I mean, this is the first presidency since Jimmy Carter's presidency from 76 to 80, where the abortion rate went up. And there, there's a lot of complicated uh, question, a lot of complicated, you know, answers to that question. There's not one simple answer to it. But one thing that happened during the Trump administration was a bunch of social indicators that indicate hope uh, for the future and, and joy <laughs> went down. Okay, so marriage rates went down. Abortion rates went up. Opioid overdoses went up. Murder went up. And I don't think there's a, a unicausal explanation for this, but 
there's without question, there was a cultural wrecking ball in place during those four years. And so the, the pro-life movement has to counter that. It can't center itself around pugilism and vengeance. And what I did in the piece is I called back to one of the most important documents I've read in my life as a pro-life activist and attorney, and this is Pope John Paul II's Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae, which he talks about the central moral core of the pro-life movement is the incomparable worth of every human person. And so what I talk about in the piece is the pro-life movement has to embody an ethos that advances that ethic. In other words, it's hard to say to somebody that you are a person, a human being of incomparable worth, your unborn child is a human being of incomparable worth, if we mistreat them, if we're vengeful towards them, if we're full of animosity towards them. And one of the sad realities of the Trump movement is it's very centered around pugilism and animosity and even vengeance. And I think it's really time. This should be a wake-up call to the pro-life movement that if we're going to win hearts and minds, we have to reconnect with Pope John Paul II's words and fully incorporate the ethos of treating, not just thinking that every person is of incomparable worth, but treating every person as if they're of incomparable worth. And you, as you acknowledge in your piece uh, that just appeared in the New York Times, uh, you are uh, very generously recognizing that as a... uh, evangelical protestant uh you're deeply inspired by uh a <laughs> the top catholic <laughs> leader of our of our lifetimes i mean he's now yes. saint john paul ii isn't he right i believe yeah. so so this a catholic pope really really helped <clears throat> excuse me teach this evangelical about what it means to be truly pro-life well, the inestimable worth of every single human life. And and that brings me to another matter where it just seems to me Americans need to come together. We're going to be talking about it. Uh, there's a... Uh, today, they, they had more than 70 bombs uh, that hit various civilian facilities in Ukraine, including a maternity hospital. Yeah. And a, a newborn baby was was killed and uh again and this is uh as horrible as uh, any infant's death is uh this one is particularly grim and because there are some reports too that the mother was also killed in the attack um valuing life in uh the united states uh, i i know that you believe profoundly also has to include supporting life and peace and the fight for liberty in other parts of the world, like Ukraine. Oh, 100%. And I think if there's one thing that has been heartening to me over this last year is how Americans have, not all of us, but almost all of us, the vast majority have come together around that concept. And Ukraine's valor has been breathtaking and our support for them has been indispensable and i'm thankful that we continue to support ukraine and you say that as a veteran who uh, was an officer deployed uh to the middle east who saw your your share of uh combat and struggle i'm speaking to david french 
And I, I want to, if we can continue, David, on issues like the the Gay Marriage Respect for Marriage Act, which uh, is almost surely going to be passed because it has bipartisan support. And I know that you, like most religious conservatives, were strongly opposed to redefining marriage. Uh, we'll talk about the switch on that and why there are some deeply committed conservatives who support the Respect for Marriage Act. We will talk about that and more with David French coming up on The Michael Medved Show. We've all heard the saying, safety in numbers. Well, think again. The IRS, the country's powerful tax collection agency, is on a hiring spree. They're bringing in 87,000 new agents. Now, no taxpayer... I think it's safe to say that David French has been, for many years, uh, a leading voice and very prominent voice among Christian conservatives. And uh, like most people who are deeply committed to the pro-life cause, I, I'm, I know that David would agree that the decision today just announced by the Georgia Supreme Court, that's a decision reinstating the state's ban on abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. This came just one week after the law was overturned by a Fulton County judge. The state Supreme Court now has reinstated it. In response to an emergency filing by the state last week uh, under uh, Governor Brian Kemp, uh, the uh, ban was lifted. Uh, the high court issued a one-page order today that puts the lower court's ruling on pause while it considers an appeal. And again, this does not eliminate all abortion. It does eliminate uh, abortion after six weeks. And uh, when you look at public opinion, David, and this is one of those things that is so striking, there really is consensus on the abortion issue, isn't there? Uh, when, when you look around the country, most people uh, who live in the United States of America do not want every abortion banned, but they certainly yeah. do want banned abortions in the final trimester and yeah. in the middle trimester as well. That's a pretty consistent polling data, right? Yeah, it, it, it's really, if you look at the polling data, it's it's pretty clear that the later that, uh, the later that abortion uh, occurs, the less public support there is for it. So if you're going to look at sort of the time where abortion public opinion really flips, it is at the Ford, at around the, uh, 15 week mark. It's very hard to find a poll that is going to say that abortion after 15 weeks is approved by a majority of the public. When you're talking about an, a man, earlier than that, it can vary depending on the polls. But you know, Georgia has a six week ban, and and Brian Kemp signed it, and Brian Kemp won re-election. Re and but what's super important for folks to realize about that is that Brian Kemp was also known as a good governor. <laughs> He was, he competently governed a state. He competently governed it through COVID crisis. There was a lot about Brian Kemp that recommended him for reelection. And the six week abortion ban didn't end his political career. The same thing with Governor DeWine of Ohio. He won by 20 points and 20 plus points and he signed an abortion ban. And that is, uh, that is, and again, another sign that 
you can actually, as a pro-life Republican, succeed even in a in a uh, states that are swing states or close to swing states. But you have to be good at your job. <laughs> it's not it's not just that you can say I'm pro-life and then win. Um, you have to be good at your job, and in fact, being good at your job is a way that you demonstrate that you have respect for the worth of your fellow citizens and the people that you govern. And so, you know, one of the things that's happened during the Trump era is that a lot of activists who've come, kind of gotten fully, gone fully all in on Trumpism will try to bully voters. They'll say, well, you, you have to vote. You have to vote for this person that you have a lot of concerns about because that's the only way you can be pro-life. And what we now know is a lot of people will say, no, I don't have to. I don't have to. I don't have to vote for somebody who's an election denier, for example, or I don't have to vote for somebody who doesn't seem to be fit for office just because you tell me they're pro-life. So if you're part of the pro-life movement, I think it's very important to tie yourself to people of high character. Don't just take anyone who's going to declare that they're pro-life and then try to bully friends and neighbors into supporting them. Tie the cause to high character, tie the cause to people who take care of other people in word and deed. And so I think the Kemp and DeWine elections are really a message, and you can, especially when you compare them to the losses of, say, a Kerry Lake in Arizona or a Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. There's a big difference there. Okay. Meanwhile, beyond the uh, politics of, of this situation, uh, right now you have uh, uh, taken the position in favor of the Respect for Marriage Act. And what the Respect for Marriage Act does is it recognizes interracial marriage uh, and guarantees a federal right for interracial marriage as if they were going to overrule the Loving v. Virginia case, which they won't. But it, it basically is meant to reassure people that uh, even if the Supreme Court overturns Obergefell and uh, then finds that there is no constitutional, federal constitutional right to uh, to same-sex marriage. And I think you and I both agree that uh, there isn't. It's This was something that was invented by the court. The question right. is, we have, um, what do they say? I think there are 500,000 same-sex marriages at least in the country today. And I think your argument, as I understand it, is that it would be a disaster if the conservative movement is seen as going after trying to break up or to punish or to uh, aggressively uh, persecute those marriages. Right, right. And, you know, if you have 500,000 marriage licenses, say, that's a million people and not including, you know, kids they might have. And the, the, the issue here is, and, and this is really sort of a fruit of the um, Clarence Thomas concurrence in Dobbs. He, he called into question uh, Obergefell explicitly, even though Alito, Justice Alito, who wrote the majority opinion, said that Dobbs provides no basis for overruling Obergefell. The Thomas concurrence created a lot of concern that something had happened where people would immediately have, so let's say that the Bergefell was overturned and, and in two years or three years or four years, and you would have people, more than a million people potentially, who could have their family relationships immediately legally disrupted. And so 
Um, at the same time, at the same time, you and I both know that some that radical same-sex marriage ad- activists have really gone after religious institutions that don't approve of same-sex marriage for religious reasons. And in fact, there's going to be, and that includes people, not just religious institutions, but people of faith in the private sector, such as there's a there's a case at uh, the Supreme Court called 303 Creative versus Elanis, where the state of Colorado is trying to force a Christian website designer, graphic designer, to design websites for same-sex marriages. And so uh, this is a situation crying out for a compromise, for that's what legislation is for. And so this Respect for Marriage Act says, well, if if you're married legally in one state, another state has to recognize it. It's, it's sort of a very basic legal command. And then, the, then it says a number of things to try to reassure people who have religious liberty objections to same-sex marriage. It says, for example, that nothing in the bill can be construed to change or to alter religious liberty protections. It, it protects nonprofits from participating in, in same-sex marriage ceremonies. It provides that there are protections for tax exemptions, uh, provides for protections for other participation, other federal programs like grant-making programs. It's not perfect. <laughs> if if I was if I was designing my dream legislation, there are things in there that I would put in there that are that are not there. But but what it does do is it provides more protection, quite frankly, than Democrats have ever been willing to provide for religious liberty in the context of LGBT rights. And so this is a situation where it seems like a quite prudent compromise and also one that's compassionate and considerate for the more than a million people or so who've ordered their lives around the Obergefell decision. And by the way, Michael, I don't think Obergefell is going to be overturned. (laughs) I don't think that's happening. I think that no, no, it would be. It it would. It. it, But they also, uh, the Democrats have campaigned saying that Loving was going to be overturned. That they were going to. Uh, to give states the right to ban interracial marriage, and that when you have the two black justices on the Supreme Court, uh, <laughs> both of whom are married to white people, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson right. and Clarence Thomas. So, no, the court, it's, it seems to me that the chances of overturning loving are about zero, right? Yeah. And to be clear, if you read what Thomas said, and this is, really diving into the weeds. Thomas has always had this sort of view that substantive due process was an improper political uh, legal doctrine and and uh, unenumerated rights should be evaluated under the privileges or immunities clause. So he was just saying evaluate these things under privileges or immunities, not, not uh, substantive due process, which is highly technical. But it still comes across as he'd overrule everything, which and he, which he 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 won't and won't have the chance to do. But we have no more chance to speak with David French, though it is a high pleasure in this greatest nation on God's green earth. <laughs> 